while the handouts are getting handed out, while God's word is being handed out amongst the people, uh, I, I, by way of introduction, I'll say the same thing that I've been saying every time, the purpose of this study, but uh, I thought that it might be wise for me to tell y'all why I do that. It's really more for me. Uh, it's good that y'all know it, but it's more for me because I know that we only have a short amount of time, and I want to talk about everything, but we can't. And so the purpose of this study is to aid us and to provide aid so we individually or in family units or in Bible studies and Sunday schools and anywhere else we might find ourselves have a tool and have a bit of remembrance, I hope, uh, some, some uh, easy ways to allow us to dive into God's word in a more profitable manner. Having said that, we are in 2 Samuel. Uh, some general things about 2 Samuel before we kind of get into some of those helps uh, that I do pray will help us, and, and we'll pray before we get there. Uh, some of those general things that we might need to know is a, is a reminder of, uh, of, of the connection of 2 Samuel with 1 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. If you see in your handy-dandy notebook, or handy-dandy, <laughs> blues clues, anybody? Uh, handy-dandy handout, um, the context and connection portion of our 2 Samuel handout uh, it says, refer to 1 Samuel. And then it says in connection, refer to 1 Samuel. That's on purpose uh, because they are intimately connected. Uh, just because in our English Bibles you see a, uh, a, a demarcation, a, a 1 Samuel on page 385 of my Bible and a 2 Samuel on whatever page, 386, that doesn't mean that uh, in the text it's just one continuous flow. It was meant to be so, uh, and the first and second kings are the same way. And, and so as we, as we look at these, you'll recall from our first Samuel uh, that, that some translations, for instance, uh, the Septuagint and others, well, they have them all grouped together, first through four kingdoms, one, two, three, and four, because they're that connected, and it's talking about the kingdom of God. Um, so that's one thing for us to remember, the, the connection. It, it's a continued narrative, and that's the second general thing that we need to remember before we dive into the help. This is a story. It's a true story, but it's a story. It's a narrative. It's not prophecy, though there is prophecy in it. It's not poetry, though there is poetry in it. Uh, it's not apocalypse uh, like we might see in Daniel or that we might see in some of the parts of the Gospels or that we might see in Revelation. Uh, this is a narrative, and so you're going to see the progression of a story from one particular date to another particular date. Uh, it's very important for us to remember that this is narrative. Uh, uh, and, and, and then, perhaps on top of that, it's a very intense story. Uh, this is wartime. A, ki a king uh, and a monarchy is being birthed and formed and, and, and established. And there's conflict. There are enemies within and without. Uh, there's family trouble. Uh, it trumps TV and all of the worldly writers that we have. It is, it is intrigue in the most godly of ways. Uh, it, this is our story from our monarchy. <laughs> this is our King David. We can remember him as such. It's good to remember that. It's an intense story. Uh, one last thing, and it's the theme. You'll find it on the handout itself. It, it, it's similar to 1 Samuel's, but I added some parenthetical statements. And it'll become obvious why I did that as we dive in uh, in just a moment. Let me read the theme. 
God reveals his plan of salvation for his people through the anointed of Israel, sin and all, culminating in the sinless anointed one to come, Jesus. Let's pray, and then let's dive into the text, see what we see. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, as we open up 2 Samuel, as we see uh, the, the king after your own heart, King David, the shepherd king, the poet king, the warrior king, Lord, we will also see that he is a sinful king, that he is in need of Jesus, just as we are. And yet, Father, we see too Jesus wonderfully proclaimed. And we see, Father, you providing time in and time out uh, the means of salvation that we so desperately need. And so, Lord, as we open up your text tonight, help us to see those things. Help us to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. With these things in mind, here are the, uh, 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 the three helps for us to dive into 2 Samuel in, in a, uh, what I would hope to be a profitable manner. The first is what I had mentioned before, the political and wartime machinations of the time. Uh, this is a narrative talking about the political uh, and wartime machinations, all right? The, the planning, the ins and outs, the intrigue in the family, the intrigue in the army, the generals and the other generals, uh, the enemy generals and the other king's son, and, and on and on. Uh, as you read through 2 Samuel, it becomes very obvious, and you can get lost if you forget that it's a narrative talking about the political and wartime machinations of the time. Uh, and so uh, it's an important first step to dive in and to remember. The second thing is the importance of the Davidic covenant, the kingly covenant. It's in chapter 7. We'll cover that. Super important. Uh, and then the third one, David's sin is revealed in 2 Samuel, and David's salvation is revealed in 2 Samuel. And it's very obvious. And we'll cover that last. And so uh, our first thing to help us to dive into the text, help us to perhaps uh, uh, have a flow for the narrative, is the political and wartime machinations. So this is the meat. This is the narrative itself. This is, this is basically the whole book. Uh, in, in chapters 1 through 5, you get the establishing of the Davidic monarchy. Uh, you'll see in your solid rock verses, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So he's got one part of the nation. Well, you see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, they anointed David king over Israel. He's been anointed over it all. He reigns over the land at this point. It's been unified under David. Uh, you'll see in 2 Samuel 1, there's a transition. If you recall, in first, uh, the last chapter of 1 Samuel, uh, uh, chapter 31, Saul, the previous king, dies. Uh, you see that story continued uh, uh, in, a, in an exact flow into 2 Samuel 1. The runner makes it to David, uh, tells him about it. Uh, some things happen there uh, that we could talk about later, but uh, uh, needless to say, you don't touch the anointed ones of Israel without repercussion, and, uh, and that is seen in chapter 1. But uh, there's a transition, uh, an establishing of the Davidic monarchy. Uh, verses 8 through t I mean, chapters 8 through 10, uh, you'll see a, a continuing growing uh, of the monarchy. Uh, you'll see victories. Uh, David has many victories. You'll see David establishing certain rulers 
uh, um, certain, you know, the, the uh, recorder and the secretary and the priests and the uh, generals. All, all of these people are getting kind of set up. Uh, as, as we continue to grow and as David is seeking to uh, create around him, as it were, a cabinet of individuals to help him establish this thing that God is doing. Uh, chapters 13 through 21, it's the largest portion, uh, really the most untouched as well. Uh, when you go through 2 Samuel, people for some reason don't like to talk about it, but there's, there is, there's much there. Uh, we won't talk about it a lot tonight uh, because this is something that uh, you would need to trudge through and, and recognize what's happening. This is where people might get lost because they think to themselves, what in the world is happening? I don't get it. But if you recognize that, that this, this reality of the Davidic monarchy that's being established and all of the political and wartime things that are playing out, of course it makes sense that, that much ink would be spent on the son who rebelled and almost took over the country. Uh, it is, it is a, a, a serious and integral moment for the kingdom because if that happens, David's gone and there's a new ruler. But in God's providence, that is not so. Uh, there, is, there is murder. There is, uh, uh, um, <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I, in all of... Um, in the most charitable way possible, perhaps, or in the most sincere way possible, without seeking to you know, be sinful at all, it, it really does put to shame any of these TV shows or you know, modern kind of fiction books that we read. There is, there is a, a depth to, to the reality of war and, and, and politics that's happening and, and the hurt between family and what that means. There is so much there uh, that can be mined, but we could get lost in it if we forget that that's the emphasis of the narrative. It's, it's the purpose. And, and if we're, as we're looking through and we're, we're seeking Jesus in the text because Jesus said he's in the text and we're wondering where is he at as we're looking for the gospel and we recognize the writer's purpose, it is easier for us to then plumb and to see the gospel and to see how God is working and how God is preserving his people, how God is moving in other ways. Uh, but, but it's easy to get lost if we're not thinking about that, particularly in the, the rebellion narrative, chapters 13 through 21. That's the narrative. Uh, as we go through the narrative, a few things emerge. That's the next two points that we need to get to. Uh, we have this overarching narrative of political and wartime stuff. Uh, that's what the writer's recording. But within that, some emphases play out. And it's, it's, it's jarring because it, there are pauses in the story. Things slow down. The first that's, that's of utmost importance is the covenant, uh, the Davidic covenant in chapter 7. Flip there with me. This is... This is vital. I have, I, I've written this in the, in the handout, so I won't say it all, but there are certain parts of Scripture that systematically and thematically play themselves out in such an important fashion that we as Christians now, with the full corpus, with, with the entire canon that we have before us, as God has preserved it, we must know in, in the Davidic covenant the covenant with David is one of those pieces of scripture. Chapter 7 of 2 Samuel of all places. God is doing something incredible. 
Uh, let's just go through the whole chapter. I won't read the first 11 verses, but or the first 10 verses rather. But in these first 10 verses, uh, uh, David is saying, hey, I'm going to build the temple of God. You know, I have a house. I want him to have a house. Nathan, the prophet that was kind of attached with David, said, yes, do it. That is good. And then God said, no. Came to Nathan in a dream and said, no, that's not good. Tell him. And so Nathan goes to him, and, and we get this intriguing moment in verse 11. A, a turning of the tables, if you will. Uh, David is saying, I'm going to build a house for God, verse 11. Uh, from that time, this is God speaking, I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord, Yahweh, his personal name, moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. And so David says, I will make God a house. He's doing it devotionally. God doesn't seek to smite him or something like that because of what he has done. Uh, David's hands are bloody. He doesn't need to do that. We'll see that elsewhere. Uh, Solomon will come after him. But there's a turning of the tables. God in his great mercy and blessing says, no, David, I will build you a house. And then we see that house being built. Verses 12 through 17, we'll read it in its entirety because it's that important to the rest of Scripture. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, who's he talking about? Solomon, or is he talking about Jesus? Well, he's talking about both, all right? Solomon is going to build the temple. Solomon is going to reign after him. This is, these are true statements, and yet, as God always does, or seemingly always does, he, he uses uh, these shadows that we will see, and we'll continue to see it as we march through the Old Testament until we arrive at Jesus. He uses these shadows, these types, uh, where, where you look at it and you say, who, who is he talking about? Well, he is talking about Solomon. The, the prophecy is fulfilled. And yet the prophecy wouldn't be truly fulfilled until we see in Jesus that it wasn't. And then Jesus comes and he says, I am the fulfillment of this covenant. The reality comes, uh, I think, in great depth and clarity when we're talking about the gospel, right? Uh, when, when we're talking about the iniquity portion of the covenant. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Jesus didn't sin. This must be about Solomon. Well, it's on recording Ryan, don't put this on there. Just kidding, you can. Um, Jesus, Jesus did sin at the end. He took our sins. He was the greatest sinner in the world as he stood on the cross, as he was crucified, and God's wrath was being poured out upon him. 
Uh, Brother Rick, uh, you were talking just this last Sunday about God's wrath, as it were, uh, hell itself rising up in the darkness. Uh, you see that in the Old Testament, the darkness uh, overwhelming us in Sheol. The hell itself, it seemed, rose up. And so as we confess that Jesus descended into hell because he took our sins, it's true. He was the greatest sinner in the world. All the sins before, during, and after he took. And the world went dark for three hours because the wrath of God was being poured out upon him. My father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He cried. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. O Jews of Jerusalem, you crucified Jesus, the sons of men. They did it. And yet, he went as God had accorded him. And we see that in scripture. And so this, this reality, this Davidic covenant, and, and, and because of that, you know, we're coming up on Easter, right? I hope that you know, uh, Jesus did die. Uh, he did take all the sins, and yet he was a perfect sacrifice. And so because of that, death could not hold him. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And he walked victorious, leading death behind him in a victory train, like a king walking to his throne. And so he ascends into heaven, and now he sitteth and reigneth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, a throne that is established forever. The Davidic covenant, it's all here now. Years. This is happening around the year 1000 B.C., thousand years before Jesus would come. God is promising it, covenanting that it would take place, and it did. And we hold fast to it, and we see Jesus even here. The covenant is vastly important. Almost every writer of the New Testament uh, is either alluding to it, quoting it, or it's so ingrained in the back of his mind that the Messiah will sit upon the throne uh, that it's just inherent in the text. Paul, Peter, John, all the other, the synoptic gospels, it's there. The Psalms use it. Psalm 110, kingly psalm. You'll see it. It's powerful. A forever reign of Jesus. Our king, you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, when speaking of Jesus as king, uh, he says that, it, you know, he, he defends us, and he, he kind of has this language, it's a little, it's a little shocking, he, he kind of pulls us away and, you know, forces us to submit, but isn't that such a great thing, because man, I just don't want to not sin sometimes, and yet we've got a king who reigns and rules, who loves us, and who is not willing to see us fall into sin. As we seek to grow, we see Jesus on the throne interceding for us, uh, doing just that very thing, seeking to make us holy as he is holy. It is a powerful moment in the text, one that will inform the rest of this book. It will inform the, uh, the prophets that will go into, the wisdom literature. Uh, it is, it is a, a vastly important chapter of Scripture. All right. As if that's not enough. Because we see the gospel there. As if that's not enough, there is more. And that's our last point. 
uh, uh, the last piece that we might need to perhaps dive into 2 Samuel in a profitable manner. Uh, God reveals our need for him and his answer to that need through the life of King David. Uh, this is David's sin and David's salvation being revealed. Let's go, uh, let's look at three examples. There's a few more, but these are kind of the big three. Let's start with um, uh, uh, Uzzah, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 6. So, uh, in chapter 6, the ark is not with David. It's not where he wants it to be. Uh, this goes back into 1 Samuel. Uh, you can look at the text and see kind of where it's coming from, why it's coming from there, things like that. Uh, but regardless, David, uh, in great wisdom, desires for the ark of the Lord uh, to come uh, into the capital city, as it were. So he sends two brothers, Uzzah and Ahio. This is in chapter 6, verse 3, if you wanted to see that. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they were driving a new cart. David bought a new cart to bring this ark home. How sweet. Well, that cart was coming to Jerusalem. All of a sudden, it hit a pothole. And Uzzah reached out to prevent the ark from falling to the ground. And... God killed him for it. God killed him dead. Right then and there. Uh, the reason being, if you're curious, uh, David didn't know. David was angry, by the way. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. He was angry. He didn't understand. In fact, verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He had bought a new cart. God's holiness, when uh, God's direct holiness, his presence, cannot come into contact with unholiness, which is us. We are unholy, sinful. And when we do come into contact with God, we are gone. Bloop. Out of existence. It doesn't work. God cannot come into contact with unholiness. It's the whole reason for the gospel. We desire so much so, even when we scream that we don't, as created beings, as, as God's creatures, our desire baseline is to be in communion with our creator. And we can't apart from Jesus. Jesus taking all those sins, just as we had mentioned, dying on the cross. Well, now, as we stand before the throne of glory, it is also a throne of grace. And we are allowed into the presence of God without being obliterated. And so Uzzah touching this ark where God's presence would reside, he died. David didn't understand why, but he should have. David, a great sinner. Every king of Israel was supposed to take God's word, the law particularly, and write it. Not only write it once, but write it a couple times and commit it to memory and Within the law, you would see that if you were going to carry the Ark of the Covenant at all, you would not put it on a cart. You would actually put it on acacia poles, and you would have four Levites carrying that Ark. That, they would not touch it. And uh, that those holy ones set apart to the task would know exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. 
That was not what David commanded, and there was repercussion for it. So you see, as the, as the story goes on, he's thinking, how in the world do I do this? And he was, <laughs> verse 10, David was not willing to take the ark. Uh, verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom. Uh, this guy gets really blessed, and the people tell King David. And so he went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Uh, we see elsewhere uh, in Chronicles, we'll get to Chronicles later, that he did it with poles. He read the law. He found it out. And because of that, he rejoiced. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. This is verse 13. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. In other words, just his underwear. So David and all, those, all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn. Uh, uh, Michael, his, his wife, did not like it. Uh, and, and that's... Um, uh, that's something that we can address later. But David's, David's particular joy of God's presence and that he was, he was allowed even to, to have God's presence come into the city, it, it utterly humbled him. Because the king didn't take off his outer garments, his armor, and his, his royal wear, as it were, his purple and fine cloth, all off. He's just in his underwear and he's dancing. Uh, It's a weird thing for us to think about, and yet it is utter joy and worship unto the Lord, a humbling David to the point of servanthood, uh, not to a kingly status. Uh, David, the sinner, still blessed by God's presence, overwhelmed by it to the point of joy. That's one example of David's uh, uh, murder. Uh, But we see another uh, example of David's murder in 2 Samuel chapters. 11 and 12. This is David and Bathsheba. Uh, Bathsheba, fairly well known. Uh, David and Bathsheba, that saga. Uh, a, a lot of sin is found within chapter uh, 11. Uh, some, some theologians and Puritans kind of sum it up by saying all of the Ten Commandments were broke in one fell swoop. Uh, uh, he, he did away with God. He looked away from God. He was slothful and not in battle when he should have been, as kings do. Uh, he was remaining at home in his slothfulness then. He looks upon another man's woman. Not only does he do that, he covets her to the point of killing the other man. Not only killing the other man, but also killing a lot of other people along with him in the front lines of battle because David was a king. He wasn't on the front lines, but he told his general to kill the man. How do you do that without other people knowing? You send him to the front lines. Well, other people had to go with him, and they died. Not only that, he tried to lie. Not only that, he tried to hide it. Not only that, not only that, it goes on and on. It stacks and stacks the greed and the pride and the lust. This is King David, the man after God's own heart. What are we to do with this? There are so many sins. Well, when we sin, we repent. Chapter 11 carries this on. We see all of this sin playing out, the whole thing. And then we get to chapter 12. Nathan, that is the prophet that I mentioned before, attached to David, as it were. Uh, Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, 
There came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as Yahweh lives, the man who has uh, done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You did it. And what did David do? Nathan continues, says he despised the word of the Lord, does evil, continues on. David said to Nathan, this is verse 13 of chapter 12. I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You know, David had oathed against himself. He said, I promise you, I'm going to kill whoever did that. He said, okay, you need to kill yourself. Uh, but Nathan says, you have been forgiven. Yahweh has done away with that. How in the world can that be? Well, we know the answer. Jesus, he covers these sins, but he doesn't just cover them. He removes them. Jesus is the one taking that. That's what the whole uh, uh, kingly reign is about. Uh, it, it's pointing to this, this otherworldly reign of Jesus Christ and what he had to do to get there. David is a sinner in need of God, and God is there. This story reveals to us how we respond to sin humbly. With regret, yes, but not only with regret with action seeking to restore. And yet, even as David sought to restore, well, his mighty man that he sent to the front lines, Uriah uh, is dead. What does he do? Well, he's married to Bathsheba now. There's a son. That son dies. There's repercussion of sin. All of this is playing out within 11 and 12. How, how do we deal with our own sin? How do we deal uh, with our own salvation? How do we deal with the repercussions of sin that come as we sin and as these things linger and remain within our family relationships, our friend relationships, our church relationships? All of these things, the sin has repercussion. Think about it like drunk driving. You can repent of junk driving, uh, but it's going to follow you around for the rest of your life. Hopefully not with a murder or a crash, but if you got pulled over for it, it remains. Even when you weren't in your right mind, it remains. It's a repercussion of sin. You broke the law. The same thing happens. And so there is consequence, much consequence that plays out. And yet, even as David uh, repents and as God removes that sin from him in his great mercy and blessing. He also continues to bless and not only bless David, but bless his people because from Bathsheba, Solomon is born and Solomon is the line of the Messiah. Not any of his other sons. And he had some good ones. He had some bad ones too, but it was Solomon who comes next. Out of all of that treachery and turmoil and regret and darkness, there was light. God works mightily and providentially. We talk about this on Sunday mornings right now, right? It's, it's being emphasized in Joseph's life. Uh, but 
It's not just Joseph. God is working, and he continues to work here in David and onward. And we'll see this in the Old Testament particularly as God is continuing to set in place all of the things needed that Christ might come at the right and providential time when things were ready uh, that he might save his people. Bathsheba. Bad stuff. And yet, God is working with even hidden blessings that David might not see yet. Lastly, this is where we'll end. Last chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 24. So those were two sins that David had committed. Lack of reading God's word, uh, leading him to commit uh, what can only be called murder because David was responsible for that man. He was responsible for the ark and he didn't read God's word, didn't know how to do it and he still sent him out and the man died. Well, David commits murder again. He also commits a slew of other sins. And so we see that as well. We see God's provision in both. Worship still happening. Presence still there of God. We see God removing sin here with Bathsheba. Uh, We see the repercussions of sin remaining. And they are devastating. And yet, even there, uh, it's hidden blessing moving us forward in the story, uh, in the salvific history of all of God's people even. Well, We come to the end and we see one more sin. David's census. We'll talk about this in 1 Chronicles uh, 24.1. I'm just going to stick the nugget in your uh, your mind now. If you are so inclined to look up the uh, associated reading in Chronicles, I would encourage you to do so. But I'm going to tell you now that you might remember it for when we get to the Chronicles. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he, that is God, incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. Just remember it. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you will, and you'll always remember it because it is frightening in the most truest of the senses. Okay, after that little nugget, uh, David, he takes the census and he does it sinfully. Uh, be it pride, uh, because he is the king now, and he wants to count his people. Be it, um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, perhaps fear or lack of trust of, of God. Uh, he wants to know how many warriors he has, just in case the Philistines come again. Uh, whatever it might be, sin is put on full display. Not only for David, but for his cabinet, as I mentioned, uh, um, his faithful general seeking to perhaps stop him, but it doesn't work. Uh, The people are seeing it because everybody's getting counted, so everybody knows that David's doing it. And so this sin that's so public is publicly punished. Chastisement in full force. And there are a lot of people who are going to die. 70,000 men, verse 15, of pestilence on Israel. That's a lot. And it was because David had sinned. God gave him some options. You can read it in the text, but uh, the baseline is that David sinned and that God is, is chastising, is revealing David's sin. And what does David do? This is the whole point. This is why we've been talking about David's sin, not to push him down or anything like that. After all, David is the man after God's own heart. And so what does he say? Well, verse 17, David spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Oh, David, he didn't know the full extent of what he was saying. 
because God had just that in mind. David's house, his father's house, Judah's house, all the way down through Jesus, the iniquity of the entirety of God's people laid upon Jesus' shoulders. Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. God answered the plea. It wouldn't come for a little while. And yet, in this moment, at the end of 2 Samuel, and really at the end of, of kind of David's reign particularly, we'll see David a little bit more, but as we transition in, there's a reminder that King David is revealing King Jesus. And he's doing so imperfectly. It's David's sin, after all, that puts David in the, in the position to cry out in such a way, in such an intercessory way, in such a sacrificial way. And yet, nonetheless, Jesus is revealed because, because it's, it's true. It did go against David's house. It did. And we come to this very end moment. God stops. He raised Gad, that's a new prophet, by the way. Verse 18, Gad came that day to David, said to him, Go up, raise an altar for the Lord on the, on the fleshing thro- uh, floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as Yahweh commanded. And when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming. Arauna said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted. And it goes on, and he does. He gets it, he builds an altar, the plague's averted. What's so important about this threshing floor is that it's where the temple would be built. This very place where the altar is erected is where God himself would descend again, like with the tabernacle, and would then dwell with his people in the very place where David said, Please, Lord, let it be against me and not the sheep. The temple is erected, a temple that would point straight to Jesus Christ until Jesus himself would go from the temple and would go from the high priest and would walk the walk up the hill and die on a cross and then what happened after it was dark it's ripped the curtain is ripped and the temple is over with and then subsequently the temple is gone eradicated from history we don't need it anymore because jesus has come and yet here in this moment for these people and for david it is very much needed because christ has not come yet and yet Christ is being put on full display. The salvation of God himself, right here. Not only in this last chapter, but in the entire narrative. Remember these three things. Remember that this is, is this second Samuel is focused on the political and the wartime intrigue. The, this narrative is real and it's happening. Uh, as, you, as you dive into it, don't get lost. Remember that point. It'll help you. Then remember the covenant, chapter 7. Remember it. Memorize it. Do whatever you need to do to remember 2 Samuel 7. And then finally, David's sin, it's our sin. David's salvation, it's our salvation because God is the one who saves. He saves through Jesus. David reveals Jesus, and yet David is not Jesus. David is a sinner in great need of a Savior. We, too, are in the same boat. And yet, praise be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for 2 Samuel. Thank you, Lord, that you revealed Jesus Christ in all of the narrative, that we can see him in all of the things that are happening as as the Davidic monarchy is established. 
Father, thank you for these particular moments where we see you covenanting, promising with a consequence that you would establish a forever throne with David. And that we see that fulfilled ultimately, not through Solomon or any of these other sons, but through Jesus Christ himself. And Lord, thank you that we can see the sin being removed from your people. Father, as we confess Jesus Christ, as we seek to praise Jesus Christ, as we seek to proclaim Jesus Christ, help us to hold fast to the gospel, not only in 2 Samuel, but in all of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.